It's a great privilege uh, for my wife and I to be involved in this community, to be leaders in this community. I'm seeing some familiar faces back from holiday after a while, also some new faces. And so my name's Paul, and no matter who you are and how many times you come here, please do consider yourself warmly invited into this community and for tea and coffee in a jumping castle afterwards. As you get to know us, you'll find out that we are not perfect. The person sitting on your left or right, I hate to disappoint you, is not perfect. There's some areas in our lives that we can develop, and this passage we've looked at presents an opportunity for us to develop. There are conflicts in our lives. There's conflict, believe it or not, in our marriages, in our families, amongst those closest to us and those extended family members as well. Conflict between parents and kids. Don't get me started on the workplace and all the dynamics that happen there. And of course, C-point apartment blocks, WhatsApp groups. And how many of you know that as more and more imperfect people gather and gather and gather over time, some conflict is going to arise? And it's that conflict, those disagreements, those quarrels and fights that James anticipates and that speaks into in our passage today. And we've got a, we've got a tagline, a faith that works when life doesn't. A faith that works when life doesn't. When you're fighting and when you're quarreling, that's life not working. But we have got a faith, we've got a trust in a God who can make those situations turn around. And so today, we are going to be looking at this whole area of conflict, quarrels and fights in the language of James. It's a passage that's strong, but it's an honest diagnosis. It's strong, but it's an honest diagnosis. And next week, we're going to get the follow-up, which are kind of all the imperatives we need to change, the things that are going to help us change. And I've got my favorite Bible teacher, Leanne Morn, my wife, up next week. So my family will be under intense pressure next week, but I'll do it for you. I'll do it for you as she prepares uh, the, the passage. So the structure for today, we're going to look at these quarrels and fights, although I don't think I have to spend too long on that because you're probably aware yourself of what a good quarrel and fight feels like. We're then going to diagnose the way into those quarrels and fights, what leads to them. Many ways, using James's language, it's, it's the way of the world that leads to it. It's pride. But then, fortunately, we do get to talk a little bit about the way out of quarrels and fights, which another way to say it would be the way of Jesus and the, and the, the antidote to pride, which is humility. And Leanne will really pick that up next week. And then we'll have Drew, Pierre, and David up afterwards to respond with the time of Reflection and song. So let's set the scene here. Quarrels and fights. What's this all about? See, James, just before addressing this, has done something quite remarkable. He's looked at this whole topic of wisdom and he said, you know what? There's, there's wisdom that looks like wisdom, but it's not. And then there's wisdom from above. And a summary of wisdom from above is that there's a way to live in right relationships with others. There's an eternity at stake. And our relationships with one another, those made in the image of God, men and women, matters more than anything else. Life is about relationships and really the key to wisdom. And he paints a picture which we looked at last week, chapter 3 from verse 17 to 18. Here's, Here's the picture. This wisdom from above is first of all pure. It's not contaminated with selfishness and jealousy. It's it's single minded in its pursuit. It's peaceable which doesn't mean an absence of conflict. It means someone who's on the front foot trying to bring integrity to situations. Whenever they see something not quite connecting with the purposes of God, they're saying, let's do something about that. Let's bring about human flourishing. It doesn't do it in a harsh way. It does it gently. It's not, it's not stubborn, closed-minded. It's open to reason, which might surprise you if you're a guest here. 
The scriptures tell us to be open to reason, to evaluate whether the path we've chosen is right. Oh, it's full of mercy, giving people what they don't deserve. Full of good fruits like love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit. It's impartial. It's not biased. It doesn't prefer one person over another. It's sincere. What it says and what it does is the same thing. And what a picture. A harvest of righteousness, a harvest of right relationships is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so James has just said to them, oh, he has a vision of what right relationships could look like. This is life lived at its fullest. And you'd think, wow, how are we going to build on? What's the next thing James is going to say? And this is what James says, and Candace just read it. What causes quarrels and fights among you? <laughs> so there's this beautiful picture of right relationships, and woo, this is how it all works. And I thought, like, that's what we would see. A group of people taking this wisdom from above and applying it and harvesting righteousness as they sow in peace. And I know we can kind of be a bit sort of jaded by that and go, oh, yeah, well, that's always what happens when you try and do this peace thing. I mean, it just never works out and there's always fights. But isn't it, isn't it just a little bit sad that that's the level of expectation we have, that we can relate to this and go, yeah, well, there's intent and then there's what really happens and, oh, well, we're just stuck in the middle. But what James is obsessed about and what he's really passionate about is saying, no, don't just be hearers of the truth. Don't just know and then have a reality that's totally disconnected and go, oh, well, that's how it is. That's what it means to be alive. James is saying, no, you can not just be hearers of the word, but you can actually be doers of the word. You can have these right relationships. And so for the rest of today, I want to get, I want to get very practical because I believe this is true. I believe that bad relationships, quarrels and fights are at the root of so much pain in our lives. So much pain. If you look back on your life, the moments where, you're, where the graph has got as, as low as it is, it's, it's the loss of something precious and probably involving someone a relationship that ended, a relationship that turned sour. I'll say it again, bad relationships cause us so much pain. And so what I'd like to do for the rest of today is for you right now to just picture a relationship that perhaps was a great joy, was a great sense of, oh, this is going place. Picture that relationship. Picture the person. I'm not talking about you sharing it with anyone. I just want you to have them right now, right here. Who is it that you fell out with? Who is it that you had a fight or a quarrel with? Who is it that you just, just can't get on with anymore? As you think about them, are you right and they're wrong in your mind right now? You're like, Paul, you don't understand how bad this was. Was it a small thing or was it a big thing? Or more likely, it was probably a small thing that over time grew into something tremendously big. Perhaps it's something that happened many, many, many years ago in the past and thankfully, you don't see them very often, and you're quite, fr you're, quite, you're quite pleased you don't see them very often because it wounds you every time you think about the situation, even now, for instance. Or perhaps it's something current, and quite frankly, it keeps you awake at night, the way in which you're not able to find each other. You think you've moved on, maybe, but the truth is that this pain is rebounding in your life, and you still live in reaction to it. And so James cares about you, we care about you, we care about each other, and so he asks this question. He has a vision about peace and right relationships, but he has the reality. He still has to ask the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He has to ask the question because he knows that's the reality. There are people in our lives, and we are that person for someone else, undoubtedly. What is at the cause of this? Despite all the pain, why do we still live with it? Why are we happy to still have this as our lived experience? Summary is, James has consistently been spoken about jealousy 
and selfish ambition, causing rivalry in our hearts. You see, we want a kingdom. We want a kingdom of peace, joy. We want all those things, but we want to be the king of that kingdom. We don't, we don't put God on the throne of that kingdom and, and orientate our lives around him. We put ourselves at the center and say, wouldn't life work brilliantly like this? And the picture that I've often had that I found incredibly helpful is a picture of our rebellion against God, a world where God placed himself at the center as the creator, made us male and female, is a world that works when we orientate around who God is and what he's revealed about himself. And he is perfect and we orientate around him and change and are transformed in degree of glory as we, as we do so. But our ultimate rebellion is as simple as this. We place ourselves at the center and we say, God and everyone else, please orbit around me. Please meet my, my preferences, my needs. I, I want the kingdom. I want peace, joy, and this is how it translates. This is how it should be. The Bible speaks about sin. It speaks about original rebellion, and I think that's what it's getting at. In a world where all of us should orientate around God, we on ourselves are static, saying, orientate around me. And of course, someone else is saying the same thing to you, and conflict results. Well, what does this do in a community? Well, it tears it apart. It rips it apart. It rips marriages apart, families apart, communities apart. It rips the social fabric. It's like poison. And that's why James uses such strong language. I don't have to go on much more on this. Have your person in mind. Have that relationship in mind. And let's apply the wisdom of God's word to that relationship today. And let's not just be hearers of the word, but doers. Doers. And so here's James speaking to us now about the way into the quarrels and fight. How did this whole thing start? And in a word, it's because we followed the way of the world and we, and we allowed pride to take, stake, to take place in our hearts. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? He, he answers it. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Uh, even reading that, you can almost feel the frustration levels rising. It's like, ah, you see, it's hopeless. You tell me I don't ask, so then I ask, and then I don't get right. Like, what? Like, you, know, like, you can just see the energy kind of increase as this is getting written. Bottom line, James is speaking about here is he's saying something happens inside way before it happens on the outside. Something's happening inside of each of us, and it starts small, but that starts something which we'll ultimately see later. You see, James has been talking about the tongue previously. He's been saying, your tongue is a small thing. It's like, it's small, but man, it sets a fire ablaze with a little spark. It's like a rudder on a big ship. It can steer a whole big ship. And he's been saying, your tongue is dangerous. It's small, but it goes places. But now James is going a little bit deeper. He's saying, you know why your tongue said that? It's because something happened in your heart a lot sooner. And now it's finally going public. But it really started in your heart. And what started in your heart was that you... You latched onto something, but you couldn't attain it. And so you started to try and fight and quarrel towards it. And then you never even thought to ask for it. And I've often, I've often thought about this passage as being, well, I didn't ask God for it, right? The scripture, you must ask, you must seek, you must knock, you must ask God. And oh, if I prayed, then I would have got it. But I also think that on a practical level in our relationships with each other, sometimes we don't even ask people to help close the gap because that would almost be shameful. It would almost be a bit embarrassing to have to ask someone for help, whether it's financial or material or comfort or prayer or in any way. It's, have you ever heard this phrase? Oh, the, those guys, they're shameless. They ask, 
They ask for things, you know. It's like the language is quite revealing. It's like it's almost shameful to recognize that you've got a gap and you need help closing that gap. So James is saying you, you've, got, you've got something happening inside of you where you won't even ask people when there's a gap for help. And then when you do, you'll ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. As parents, I mean, we can all think of examples of like, of moments, but if we're truthful, it's also in our hearts, in our moments, we're like, okay, fine, just give it to me then. <laughs> like, you know, that's our best attempt at asking for something. But clearly, our, our hearts are not in a place where that would be a helpful response to say yes, because we wouldn't have dealt with what was really happening in our heart. You see, what's happening in a quarrel is so much more than just what gets said by our tongues. There's something happening inside of us before. And I want you to think of that person. I want to think of that conflict. And I want to try and think about what happened. What happened? Let me think of an example from my own life. Here you go, Leanne and I at the door waiting to leave the house. Or correction, I'm at the door waiting to leave the house. And what happens in that moment is instead of being open to reason and logic, what can happen in that moment is I can start telling a story in my own head. The story goes something like this. I can't believe this is happening again. I, I can't believe we're going to be late for this thing. She knows how important it is to me, and it's like she doesn't even care. She hasn't even considered the impact, and I'm getting more and more worked up. And I've told a story in my head, which isn't just that we're going to be late. It's that we're going to be late because of someone who's deliberately withholding towards me. Flick over to Leanne. What's Leanne experiencing? Well, Leanne is, as she's told me many times, considering all the variables before we leave the home. She's thinking water. She's thinking snacks. Where are we going to go after? How many moving parts there need to be? And she's busy gathering those up and therefore delaying our departure. And in her age, she suddenly goes, you know, this is typical of Paul. This arrogant guy, he doesn't help around the house. He's so out of touch. He doesn't even know what I'm doing. I bet you he's soon going to say something like, babe, where are you? <laughs> I'm using the word babe to donate tenderness, but tone of voice um, in a different place. And she starts telling herself the story. This is so typical of him. He underappreciates my role. He doesn't truly understand. He doesn't even try to understand. And quite frankly, I'm sick of this. And so, in fact, I'm actually going to slow down while I'm doing this because what's the point? He's going to scream. He's going to scream anyway. Now, as she slows down and as I start to hyperventilate, what's, well, and this is, what, this is really what happens. I'm not making up this example, believe it or not. A dynamic starts to take place where I, I up the level of frustration because I'm not just dealing with an incident. I'm dealing with a story I've told myself. And Leanne, of course, what does she hear? She hears the frustration, and it plays straight into the story she's told herself, which is this is a guy who doesn't engage with me at all, doesn't care, he's not even aware of what's happening. And, of course, that just means that she comes back at me with even more examples of how I haven't heard her. This dynamic is not just in our home, it's in all our homes, it's in our workplaces, it's in our family relationships, where the way we interact gets worse and worse and worse because we're giving each other more evidence for the stories we've told each other. And that evidence piles on and piles on and convinces us that we've got a righteous anger that deserves to be expressed. You see, what happened is Leanne was late, sure, but it started with a lie at that point where I then said, because of the following. And I didn't be open to reason and acknowledge that it could be because she's collecting up things and if I'd actually just helped earlier, we could be leaving on time. Simple sentence, how can I help you? Would have done a whole bunch of good 10 minutes earlier. 
And at the same time, Lian has also believed a lie that there is someone here who will never get engaged and cannot be drawn in and, and hasn't offered to sort of um, include me in, in more of the story as we've gone about our business. Now, it might seem like a small thing, but very quickly the stories we tell each other become the stories that we struggle to get out of, and we start to look for more and more evidence that reinforces our views of each other. You're off at the races when you start to believe lies of one another. That lie starts, why it gets embraced is our hearts are disordered, and quite frankly, who of us goes through life thinking, I'm the problem? None of us, right? The nature of this is that we will look for evidence in other people to defend our hearts that put us at the number one. Remember, we're static, asking others to orientate around us. So our hearts are going, you see, there's the evidence, there's the evidence. And quite frankly, we then meet a world that says, yes, you need to stand up for rights. You need to, don't back down. A lie has appealed to a disordered heart and has been applauded by a world that says, stand up for your rights. That's not, you know, what's happening to you is not right. This is how the world, the flesh, and the devil take hold of us. So what is our right? So what is our right response? You've got someone who, there was a genuine incident, you've now told stories about each other, and now you're locked into those stories. Everything you see about each other confirms the story. What, what's the right response right now? The one is, we're told is ignore it. Just ignore it. Put on your big boy pants, your big girl pants, just ignore it. Let sleeping dogs lie. Just power through. Emotionally numb yourself out. Do whatever it takes. That's a tactic that I think, hey, men, we like that one. <laughs> that was quite nice. Just ignore it. Keep going. Uh, but it leaks. It leaks all over the place. You think you're not giving it off, but you are. You're still living in reaction. What's another response? Well, you could try and move towards the situation. You know, I heard, I heard a talk about this. Let me move towards you and let me tell you why I'm right. <laughs> right? I mean, that's just a very practical one. And that's the reason why at nighttime you're like, oh, I should have said that when we were arguing. Now I need to generate the argument again so I can go back and say the line. That, I mean, it's probably happening at an unconscious level, but you're like, that was the line, that was the zinger. And then, of course, they've done the same thing. So they're just waiting to say their lines. And you're moving towards it, but you're not moving towards it to genuine reconcile. You're moving toward it to justify yourself and land the knockout blow. And both of you are doing that, so that doesn't go well. So ignoring it, moving towards it doesn't seem too well. Then the third option is just to write the other person off, but to do so in a way that like, really lets them know that you've written them off. This is sort of the cancel culture kind of way. And, and in a way, you think, getting this all out is going to just set me free. You know, it's going to be like this anger that is so justified and so righteous is going to finally be out of my life because I've just like let it go and then I can move on. So I'm, I'm not ignoring it. I'm moving towards it, but I'm moving towards it to like properly wipe it out. And this person needs to know just how far at the bottom of the, you know, the food chain they are. Those are, the, those are the options largely given to us. The fourth one of trying to reconcile and trying to go back, oh, that's going to be, you're going to be a doormat. Don't do that. They're going to suck you into the whole pattern. Like that, that's, not, that's not really an option, is it? James, is, and we're going to get to it now, saying that the problem with all of these responses is that it's still us at the center. It's still us justifying. It's still self-interest and rivalry and jealousy. It's still pride. And we're blind to it. Until we recognize that is the root, we're blind to it because we're all going to be insisting that we orbit around each other. Our tongues are going to be flying off at each other, but until we go back to the heart issues, of how we got into this, we're never going to be able to truly reconcile. 
Does Jesus have a better way? Does Jesus have a better way for his followers? And the good news is he does. He does. Does Jesus have a spirit that's at work in each and every one of us that's going to nudge us in a different direction, convict us that the way I'm doing this, it feels kind of good, but it's going to be very painful later. How about a spirit that says, oh, this is going to feel painful now, but there's going to be freedom and peace later. If you've, if you've got a sense, this is going to be so good now, forget about later. That's probably not the spirit of God. The spirit of God is probably going to sound like, oh, this is going to feel like death now, but you're going to walk in freedom later. Let's just, let's just read on what James has to say from verse 4 as we now understand a way out, a way out of quarrels and jealousy. It's the way of humility, not the way of pride. Verse 4, you adulterous people, exclamation mark. That is, that is strong language. That is not someone telling you, oh, just ignore it. Go so-. That's someone saying, stop it, strongly. And not just stop it, saying you are like someone committing adultery. That is what you who are fighting, the church he's writing to. Not, he's not writing to Cape Town, everyone running around there. He's writing to the church, people who are saying they follow Jesus. He's not telling someone on the corner, hey, you adulterous person. He's, that's not what he's doing. He's saying, you, looking good here on a Sunday morning. You guys, you guys are adulterers. You've lost the plot. I'm speaking to you. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's, it's, it's to fight with God. What you're doing now is fighting with God. You think you're fighting with people, but you're actually fighting with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, this language is strong, but it's consistent throughout Scripture. It's consistent throughout Scripture. Adultery is often used as the language of the people of God who break covenant with God. A God who says, I'll pour out my spirit on you. I will, I will be your God. You will be my people. It constantly gets rejected. A God who says, love me with all your heart, soul, strength, your mind, constantly has people saying, oh, I'm kind of in, but not fully. Isaiah 54 says the following, just again showing you how strong and consistent this theme is in Scripture. Isaiah writes in from verse 5 says, for your maker is your husband. Incredibly scandalous language here. Everyone made in the image of God is betrothed to God. The maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He's made it possible for you to be brought into this covenant. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. He said, I've, I've made it possible, and yet you have won it off. You've said, orientate around me, orientate around me, the ultimate rebellion, the original rebellion, and yet God comes like a scorned spouse, still pursuing, still caring, still having you in mind. If you think, oh, this is Isaiah, this is James, Jesus, in his own language, calls us the following. He says, oh, you are a wicked and adulterous generation. <laughs> A wicked and adulterous generation. It's like he's looked into hearts and gone, there's not a single person here who's involved in a current conflict or fight with someone who's, who's trying to make it right by their standards. But what's important to realize is Jesus, James, Isaiah, they love the people they're writing to. And so they're using the strong language not to, not to get hits and to go viral and to kind of cause a stir. They're using the strong language because they want it to wake us up to a condition which we've probably just got used to and thought, well, that's just how it is. I can't really sort this out, can I? I hear one thing, but reality is just like this, and that's as good as it's going to get. So the key question he's asking is, is do, you, 
Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If we get that verse back up. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's a question he's asking. Has that really dropped in your mind? See, what he's saying is, it's not, and this is clear, we're not saying don't have friends in the world. What he's saying is, the language means, friendship with the world means embracing what everyone else who doesn't consider God on the throne and God at the center, embracing what everyone else thinks of as important. It's embracing not the people of the world, but the values of the world. It's embracing the lies that have been put into our culture and are just accepted. Friendship in the ancient world was a sharing of all things, physically and spiritually. So he's saying, if you, if you agree with everyone and everything that's just happening in the world, the way things are, and you kind of go, well, that's just the way it is. He says, don't you know that that's placing yourself in opposition to God, the creator of the heaven and earth? Are you aligning with the kingdom or are you aligning with the world? Not the people of it, but the values and the culture and the purpose and the vision. This is what James is passionate about the whole time. He's saying, what's really going on here, guys, is you're double-minded. You're thinking, I can have a bit of this and a bit of God. And he said, no, you need to be single-minded on the kingdom of God. I can keep going as it is and just add a little bit of God to everything. You know, I'll, I'll fight and then I'll pray about it afterwards because I'll feel so bad. No, the foundation on which you're operating remains intact, this foundation of selfishness and rivalry and jealousy. It's not going to work, says James. It's not going to work, says Jesus. It's not going to work, says Isaiah. It's not going to work at all. That's what Scripture teaches us. Does Jesus have a better way? And the good news is he does. He does have a better way. Verse 5 starts to represent it to us. He says, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So here we sit, asking everyone to orientate around us, getting upset when they don't do it, jealously, trying to get the world to work. And what we read here is that God has placed the spirit that is also jealous, but it's jealous for our freedom. It's jealous for our liberty. It's jealous for us to see things as they really are and then wake up and go, why am I doing this? Why am I stuck in this infinity loop? Now, there are two possible meanings, and translators spend a lot of paragraphs on this, and I'm going to spare you it. Here are the two possible meanings. The one is that God has placed his Holy Spirit in us, and that Holy Spirit is saying, I'm going to set you free. I'm, I'm jealous over your freedom, and that is what's getting spoken of, God's Holy Spirit in us. Another group of people say, hey, the words are quite clear, but we think James intends the following. He's saying, you have a spirit inside of you that left to itself starts to compare to others, notice what you don't have, and then jealously starts to compete and cause rivalry. Now, taking a step back, both of these are true in other passages. God does give us his spirit that nudges us and calls us to a standard of kingdom living. And likewise, left alone, our spirit does tend towards rebellion and, and sin. So both are true. And commentators are just debating which one is meant here. They reckon, though, it's probably God who's saying, I love you so much, I refuse to let you stay in this condition of quarreling, of of selfish ambition. I refuse to let that root of bitterness so get into you that you end up just obsessing about this conflict and allowing pride to take over your life. And maybe as you sit here today, you say, but I, I didn't think God could be jealous. Is God allowed to be jealous? How does that even work? Can I remind you that whenever we speak about God's jealousy, we're talking about a settled opposition 
to all things that look to diminish his glory. Settled opposition towards sin. This is not hysterical. This is someone who's saying, I'm not going to accept something that's going to harm you. Think about a parent whose child that they love is on drugs. Would, would that parent be loving if they just sat back and watched with apathy? Or would that parent be demonstrating love by moving towards, jealously, trying their best to learn about all the dynamics at play, trying their best to, to get help from those outside their, their spheres of, you know, no, no pride is in the way of, of a parent who is lovingly moving towards their child, trying to, as best as possible, get them off whatever addiction has entrapped them and made their life so much smaller. We've got, we've got parents in this community that can speak into that journey if that's where you find yourself. So no condemnation, just the reality that the loving parent doesn't sit back and go, it's the loving parent who moves towards that in the same way God who's made us sends his spirit into our hearts and jealously calls us to freedom. So there's some bad news here. If you love what everyone else loves and you get into all the conflicts everyone else, God's coming for you. If you're his son or daughter, God's coming for you. So there's some bad news. But the good news is, if you love the world and it's stuck in all kinds of conflict and it's easy to find one person here today, in fact, you've got many people, you're like, oh, which one should I pick? There's some good news. God's coming for you. God's coming for you. Verse six says it, but, the most encouraging words in scripture, but, <laughs> there's a downward spiral. There's a downward spiral, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. And therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. James has said to us, there's an earthly wisdom at play in all our lives. Something happens and we believe a lie about someone else. And in that moment, we latch onto that lie and the devil, the flesh and the world come along and our passions start to wage within us. We tell stories about them that always make us feel good and them feel small. It manifests in pride and quarrels. And what does God do? He gives more grace, more of his presence, more of his covenant faithfulness, his never-ending, everlasting, always and forever love. He gives more grace, which means he gives himself. But it's not the proud who are willing to accept that. It's the humble. It's, it's those that humble themselves. And you know I'm serious now because I'm going to bring out the Tim Keller, pastor from New York. And, and I want us, as we come into land now, to apply this deeply. We've learned some things, but I want us to hear James K. Smith when he says, you can't think your way into new hungers. You can't think your way into new hungers. What I'm trusting now as we respond is that there'll be something inside of us that doesn't just passively kind of accept that we're going to be part of some conflicts, but right now has a new appetite to say, no, I, I, I desire something else with my life. I desire right relationships. I desire to come clean with the stories I've told of other people. I desire to come before God and be changed. I desire for him right now to deal with my pride and help me go for, forward with humility because you saw there's one condition. He gives more grace, not to the proud. Hey, there's one condition. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And right now you're going, oh, thank goodness, that's me. I'm the humble. But I'm not sure it is all of us. I'm not sure it's me. And so I want to help you using Tim Keller's diagnosis. Here's what spiritual pride looks like. It makes you more aware of others' faults than your own. You're so busy telling the story about someone else, you don't think there's a story that applies to you. But spiritual humility makes you far more aware of your own faults than others. Spiritual pride leads you to speak of others' faults with an air of contempt or disdain. Like, can you believe this person? 
Spiritual humility, though, when you speak of others' faults, you do so with grief and mercy. Because you know the same applies for you. Spiritual pride leads you to separate from those who criticize you, or you separate, just you criticize them, sorry, or you separate and avoid them. Kind of go, Pff. Spiritual humility means you stick with people in difficult relationships. You don't give up. A proud person is dogmatic about every point of belief, cannot distinguish between a major and minor point of doctrine or life, right? Leaving the house late. But a spiritually humble person is able to make that distinction. They're flexible. doesn't mean they don't have principles, but they just know what hills are worth dying on and which aren't. A proud person loves to confront because they like winning or... Or you refuse to confront because you don't like controversy. I'm humble, so I don't upset anyone. I don't, I don't, and you bottle it up. It doesn't go well. Spiritually humble person confronts when necessary. And then final diagnostic for all of us. Spiritually proud person is often unhappy, feels sorry for themselves. They're filled with self-pity because they're sure how life ought to go. Like, why is not everything orientating around me? And they're sure they deserve a good life. I even got a life group, man. God should really come through for me. Spiritually humble person believes they should be cast off. They knew they were in a downward spiral, but yet grace upon grace, but God and his mercy and his grace has made us able to live. There's a call to humility to us, a call to be humble. And as you read through that list, there's one person who, who comes to mind. There's one person who's been able to do it, and that's Jesus. God's given grace to the humble by becoming humble by seeing us in desperate need and not turning away and leaving us, but moving towards us, going to a cross, receiving the worst of our vindictiveness and our rivalry and our contempt and our jealousy, and yet choosing to do that. And that's why we as a community continuously say, let's be with Jesus. Let's become like Jesus. Let's do what Jesus would do, because it's in Jesus and it's in his spirit alive in us that we have the ability to even start this journey towards humility. And as I say, next week, Leanne will get up here and will lead us in this, that response. Will you stand with me? I'm going to invite the band up. And I'm going to read Psalm 81 over us. Psalm 81, uh, written by David, is also a song. And so I think it's appropriate for us to kind of recognize that throughout history, when Christ followers have gathered, they've sung in response as a way of kind of capturing moments like this. This is what Psalm 81 says. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. <laughs> This is God just kind of saying, listen to me, I'm trying to get your attention. Don't think it's only for us now, it's throughout history. He says, oh Israel, my people, if you would but listen to me, there will be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. What's that strange God among you? I, I think it's us on our throne saying, come on, orientate around me, everyone, sort, sort me out. God said, no, you were never qualified to be on the throne of your life. I alone am your maker. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. So we respond now, that last verse, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. That's a direct quote from Exodus 20. And right afterwards, what he does after Exodus 20 is he gives the Ten Commandments. He says, he has how to live a, a wise life. He has how to live life as a doer of the word, not just a hearer. He gives the Ten Commandments. But what do you see here in Psalm 81? He doesn't give Ten Commandments. What does he give? He gives this instruction. Open your mouth wide, I will fill it. Sister, there's a banquet, there's a feast, there's a life to be lived. Open your mouth, just confess your need. Confess your need. Say, I'm humbling myself today. I need you. Let me know. I'm, I'm nowhere. 
that God, I come to you now. 